Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to Think Again, a program presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change since the 90s. I'm Jacques Boulet. And I'm Jennifer Burrell. And for the 222nd programme, we are, as per usual, broadcasting from the 3CR studio on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Today we're talking again about neoliberal mythologies and we're hoping to speed up their demise in the process. Our favourite business commentator, Ross Gittens, has recently commented on developments which pretty much offer confirmation of what we have been hinting at in our Think Again programmes. The inglorious end of neoliberalism, or as it is often also called, economic rationalism. We like Ross Gittens, because he avoids much of the gobbledygook business and economics commentators use to hide what's really going on. It's a pity his comments are usually hidden on the third or fourth page of the Saturday Ages business section, lost between sports, travel and entertainment sections, to go to places for weekend paper readers. In the borderlands of mainstream media, <laughs> shark, mm. so to speak. But we're seeking out because Gittins frequently points out how the neoliberal emperor is wearing no clothes, describing neoliberalism as the belief that what is good for business is good for the rest of us. So that's the basic tenet, mm. I think, of neoliberalism. And, he, and Gittins wonders why we're still putting up with it for example, uh, in mid-August, he wondered, why do ordinary people put up with the capitalist system in which big business people are revered like Greek gods, permitted to lecture us on our many failings and allowed to pay themselves maybe 40 times what an ordinary worker gets? Supposedly, because the punters get their cut. I think that's us. Mm. <laughs> because enough of the benefits trickle down to ordinary workers to give them a steadily improving standard of living. Because wages always rise a bit faster than prices do. Ha ha. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At least that is what the social contract the rich and powerful have made with the rest of us for letting them call the shots. But for the past decade or more, we've got nothing from the deal. Indeed, our standard of living has slipped back, unquote. <laughs> and Kittens is not alone. In the Saturday Age, Jim Bright titles his contribution Nothing Justifies the Top Earners' Pay Packets. Apologists for big salaries who talk about value for money totally miss the point. And Bright wonders in his conclusion, and I quote, Why do we as a society, or indeed as shareholders, put up with these disparities. Is this the kind of world we want to live in? And if not, what are we doing? 
to change it. Mm. End of quote. He cites an Australia Institute report suggesting that 93% of economic gains have gone to the top 10% of income earners, mm. leaving only 7% of the gains to the bottom 90%. So it's 7% seven, seven, seven of the gains to the bottom 90%. That's right. So, wow. Mm-hmm. In the same business section, Paul Krugman finds that, and I quote, the wealthy surround themselves with people who tell them how brilliant they are, or with other West wealthy people who join them in mutual affirmation of their superiority to mere technical drones. Mm-hmm. End of quote. Mm-hmm. He describes those wealthy people as intellectually inbred community of very wealthy men, leading to no-nothingism, accounting for things like anti-vax agitation and crypto-enthusiasm. That's from a reprinted article from the New York Times titled The Paranoia of Tech Plutocrats. So this stuff is even bursting into mainstream media, Jacques. <laughs> That's right. So getting so hard to ignore. And, and talking about cosseting the rich, what about getting them to pay their fair share of tax? <laughs> so Ross Gittins attacked this head-on in an article in The Age in late October titled Paying Tax is Good and for Better Government We Should Pay More. <laughs> so hmm. how about that? Paying Tax is Good. And he's a brave man, Jacques. Yeah, indeed. Wow, again. I especially as that happens in The Age, owned by Nile Entertainment, whose board is chaired by former Howard Liberal Government treasurer Peter Costello. Mm-hmm. Earlier, on the 25th of March, Gittens was already telling us that much of our prosperity came from government and the taxes it imposed, mm-hmm. while arguing that it's not so much growth and efficiency that make our lives better, but how we get the growth, the costs that come with the growth, and what we use the growth to buy. Mm, which is another argument against economic growth for growth's sake, asking, as you say, Jacques, who pays and who benefits for the growth? Mm, absolutely. In October, Gittins was referring to former Treasury econocrat Mike Keating, who held a speech at a revenue summit of the Australia Institute. Keating clearly spelled out the neoliberal contradiction, saying that we want increased access to more and better services on the one end and less taxation on the other. Mm. And Gittins describes poignantly how previous governments attempted to square the circle of maintaining essential services while cutting taxes. Mm. As he puts it, including next July's Stage 3 tax cuts, which disproportionately benefit those on higher incomes by underspending on services and hoping no one would notice. Mike Keating offered a list of seven areas where more spending, and therefore more taxes, are urgently needed, including child and aged care, housing, health, the environment and universities. Mm. And come election cycles, the politicians are always wanting to talk about cutting taxes and increasing services at the same time. Yeah, and we've become really complacent about lowering taxes, especially for the rich. 
but then we complain, as I say, about the lack of services and infrastructure, including housing, which mm -hmm. is a really burning issue for That's a lot right. of people. And interestingly, Gitton suggested that the public might be more prepared to accept higher taxes with a better understanding of what we get for our money, which moves us, Shark and I, into the area of accountability and evaluation. Yes, checking usefulness and adequacy of government programs came about as an idea during the early 70s already in the US as part of a conservative reaction against the costs of welfare and other social policies which were proliferating in the 60s. It was called the Taxpayer Revolt in California, which indirectly led to the presidency of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Mm, and then we had Thatcher in Britain, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, and so they all, we all started to uh, cut back taxes and roll back welfare programs that had been developed over the decades mm -hmm. since World War exactly. II. Exactly. The Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal revolution. Initially, evaluations were mostly based on randomised controlled trials, which it appears that our present assistant treasurer Andy Liu is a fan of. Andrew Lay? Lee or Lay? Oh, is it Lee? I'm not sure, yeah. Sorry, I think you're right. Mm. We think they're better than nothing, mm. such evaluations. I'm, I'm not sure about that, Shark, mm. um, especially when they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, soak up lots of worker resources and time and organisation times and then only give phony data. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure it's always better than nothing. Yeah, well, that, that is actually true, but uh, the ignor ignoring evaluation, though, is certainly the worst of all. Mm -hmm. Such evaluations, they certainly don't guarantee optimal trans transparency or assure democratic involvement or participation in the planning and implementation of social policies and programs, or more generally, in all government decisions. Yeah. Still, proper evaluation of governance and policy matters is a good thing in itself. Yeah. There's now an, an Australian Centre for Evaluation uh, started by this government under the government or the control of Lee. Uh, its first evaluation thankfully focused on the outsourced Australian Employment Services. Like Job Services Australia. That's right, to check whether they help reduce long-term and structural unemployment, as was the purpose of these services. Yeah, well, I think we could save the government a lot of money on that one, Chuck. Yeah, exactly, we certainly could. Gittin's comment on what has been happening is spot on, and I quote, on one side, Bureaucrats have used the tendering process to pay as little as possible for the services the government says it wants to be provided. On the other, the providers, even some of the community organizing organizations that seem only in it for the money, mm. those providers have learned all the way to tick the boxes and be paid while doing precious little to help people with problems. End of quote. Fully to the point, we think, as we remember, the robot, the robot scandal, for example. So, yes to evaluation. Yeah, but no to meaningless tick-box exercises. Indeed. And given Borderland's own interest in evaluation, genuine, 
genuine evaluation sounds pretty good anyway, and we'll come back to that later. We also agree with former competition regulator Alan Feltz that a more accountable and transparent way of running the country is needed with some real structural change and certainly less outsourcing of the business of government to fat cat consultancy firms. Yeah, so on that note, I think we'll go to some music now. Work by Rory Ellis from his album Two Feathers. You gotta work. Work till you drop. You gotta work. Man, don't stop. You gotta work. 24-7 around the clock. Now work. Hey, slaves. I really don't mind if I take all of your time. I know love for you. Just a pat on the head. Goodbye. You gotta work, work till you drop. You gotta work, man. Don't stop. You gotta work, twenty-four-seven around the clock. Now work. And there's a deal been done for you, and you'll never walk in his shoes. Did you sign that thing where the devil gets to? Yes, so you gotta work, work, work till you drop. You gotta work, work, man, don't stop. You gotta work 24 7 around the clock. CR Radio 855am on your dial and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Today we're nudging along the demise of neoliberalism oh, We're trying to, <laughs> doing our best That's right, the discredited doctrine that what's good for big business is good for all of us Although the call for accountability and evaluation came along with the anti-welfare push we're not against that either no, certainly not. 
And on the surface, the focus on evaluation, we talked about before the break, is entirely laudable. Why not make sure that services and programs funded by the public purse are effective and, and fair? Mm -hmm. Why not make sure that services and programs um, are meaningful? Are yeah. meaningful. That's Thank right. you, Jacques. But such evaluations do need to be meaningful. You're right. That's the catch. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have a situation where people designing evaluation regimes and inflicting them on workers and organisations often have no understanding of what meaningful evaluation might look like. For example, community service providers, including teachers, um, they, well, uh, they, off, they spend huge amounts of time on data entry. Mm -hmm. And I know um, there are community uh, providers at the front line can spend 25% to 50% of their time entering data <laughs> with data sets designed by far off government Bureaucrats. Yeah, which Gittens usually refers to as productivity econocrats. Much of those not even looked at by the econocrats, of those data, not even looked at by the econocrats. Yeah, so much wasted time. Mm -hmm. I've often wondered how many additional frontline staff could be employed if data and monitoring requirements were reduced and professionals and workers were just allowed to get on with the jobs they're trained and paid for. <laughs> yeah, as mentioned before the break, private providers and some not-for-profits are scamming the system when working out how to meet narrow key performance indicators, the fearful KPIs, mm -hmm. for often large amounts of public funding aiming to maximise their profits while minimising the broader purpose of or program, uh, purposes of programs or services. Yeah, like the job services services mm, we mentioned right. before. Mm. Um, and an example of that um, job services um, example, we talked about that in an early September program titled Punishment for Profit, how corporations punish unemployed people while milking the public purse. Right. Yeah. But it's good that the current government at least aspires to ditch neoliberal ways of doing things that favour only big business. Mm. Instead, saying at least <laughs> again that it aims for full employment with jobs that are decent, secure and fairly paid. Let's encourage them and keep them to it. And that is why the way we do evaluation is so important. Yeah. So as a, as a value, valuation practitioners ourselves, you and I, Jacques, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really frustrating to see narrow measures of program outcomes being used in evaluation. Measures not necessarily revealing the experience of the recipient or the people that the programs are meant to be for, but being countable in some way and having magic numbers associated mm -hmm. with them, yeah, which are often very subjective when you look behind them anyway. And, and, and that, that enables, when you have those countable, countable numbers, that enables governments to say that they delivered what they promised, despite the experiences of people on the ground. And, and a lot of that sort of evaluation um, is bound to be by the big firms like 
KPMG. But without... Not, not you at Borderland, Chuck. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but without democratic participation and genuinely expressed experience, making evaluation meaningful and useful for those the services were meant to be for. That's right. So with this in mind, it might be helpful to look at some different evaluation approaches. So I guess firstly, there's what's called summative evaluation, where what was done by the service is summed up (laughs) at the end of the program, um, which is necessary probably, but not sufficient. Indeed, being done at the end of the program, summative findings often cannot be used anymore to avoid mistakes to improve service delivery or to generate new programs or insert preventative measures as well. Funding often has usually run out at this point to do anything meaningful with the program. But um, I think before talking more about this evaluation approaches and launching in, um, I'm thinking listeners may be wondering why we're delving into evaluation. So for people who are a bit Mystified at this maybe seemingly obscure topic, I guess our general argument is that evaluation is highly political. Mm -hmm. The subterfuge is that it's all about a merely technical issue, just about using certain techniques and frameworks and tools, even while serving to bolster the dominant hyper-capitalist or neoliberal order. So, Jacques, we argued the same about managerialism way back in June 2019, And we also talked about citizen participation in decision-making in the same way in September last year. Uh, But but they're all part of day-to-day scaffolding of hyper-capitalism that we're living in. And like a magician's trick, it's all done in plain sight and usually or often with our complicity. Sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Mm. So back to evaluation, Jacques. Um, so you were speaking about simple, we were speaking about simple summative evaluation, which I think we could rephrase as summing up evaluation. <laughs> um, but at the other end of the spectrum, we have, which I think we like, developmental evaluation. Developmental eva- evaluation involves setting up processes where those involved regularly look at the findings reflect on them together and make decisions about any changes or new directions that are needed. So, so it's democratic because it creates space for people affected to give feedback and have input into what happens next. Um, and so, ex- for example, the job support programs, are they really helping unemployed people get into paid work, into meaningful paid work? If not, what are the barriers being thrown up? What are the unintended consequences of the program, such as deterioration in health and well-being or loss of dignity or or even destitution? So what might be changed or trialled to improve the program and have better outcomes? Yes, another important characteristic of developmental evaluation is that it responds to the complexity of the real world with key people meeting on a regular basis to look at real-time data, to inform ongoing decisions and to adapt to what is happening in the real world and to the people for whom the program is supposed to be good. So it is flexible. Yeah, well, after all, it's how we operate in the real world. So say you had to go to a new workplace, you're 
GPS gives you the supposedly shortest route. You follow that route, but you get caught up in peak hour traffic and you're late. Upon arrival, someone tells you a much shorter route, which you take the next time. So in evaluation terms, you acted based on the initial information you had from your GPS. Then you reviewed how it went, not so good as it happened. Receiving new information or advice, you adapted your behaviour like we do, taking another route the next time. If only all evaluations were so intelligent <laughs> and took this adaptive and flexible route <laughs> way of doing things based on real life intelligence instead of sticking to the same program design and data collection regime often designed years before and everyone intuitively knowing it's nonsense. So Michael Quinn Patton, um, who's really championed, and I think he coined that name developmental evaluation, and he had a, a classic text in 2011, Developmental Evaluation, Applying Complexity Concepts to Enhance Innovation and Use. And we'll put that on the program page. But it's quite sophisticated in its detail, but its basic principles are quite simple and relatable. Um, and it's similar to that even earlier um, what people refer to as participatory action research approach. And, and both these approaches, they involve everyday common sense ways of research practice. We take in information, we plan what to do based on the information, we act, uh, then we reflect on what happened. Did it work? Do we need to do things differently next time? And then we adapt accordingly. And also participatory action research and developmental evaluation, they're both democratic, <laughs> with key people involved in the regular assessment of the program and decision making decisions on future directions. And if only we could even, um, it's very relevant even thinking of Aboriginal people and the voice, you mm -hmm. know, needing a voice in what's done with them and not to them. So it's, um, it's all very practical and meaningful and useful, all these approaches. Yeah, that's a good summary of how we at Borderlands came to evaluation. Participatory action research came into being way back in the 70s when more democratic and participatory methods of evaluation were developed and in introduced. In Australia, this was especially marked by Yolande Wattsworth's act activism and writing from the end 70s onwards. Yeah, and she um, is f famous for a couple of texts. It's a r uh, everyday evaluation on the run and do-it-yourself social research and really useful for any community activists or organisers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we certainly need evaluation to become more organic and embedded in the real world and funded yes. and part of social... Not just, all, not just sending it all to KPMG. <laughs> That's right. And part of social and other programs from the very start of planning and implementation. Which is very important. The evaluation process needs to be designed and planned at the same time as the program is designed and planned. And yep. more than ever... We need the reflective and participatory involvement of workers, managers, recipients and communities, which indeed has been the philosophical basis for most of Borderlands' work since our beginnings in 1997. Hallelujah! <laughs> that was a commercial. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. 
The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You can join a weekly protest to stop the war on Gaza and free Palestine on Sunday 12th of November, 12 noon at the State Library. Thanks for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio. If you want to send us feedback or ideas, you can email Borderlands, borders at borderlands.org.au. Our past programs are available by podcast on a variety of platforms and via the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile, please enjoy Milku Mana by King Stingray. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.